Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what did they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by Rachel Onstad to talk about Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So, Rachel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Very happy that you're joining. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular movie? I have an MFA in scenic design. Mm -hmm. And it's actually it's called scenography. And it's a combination of costume lighting and set design for theater. And this, you know, is was part of the culmination of really a lifelong interest in Mm -hmm. all of those areas. Before that, I was an architect, I worked on a lot of historic structures. Mm -hmm. And before that, I used to teach a lot of kind of goddessy mythology, lore, Mm-hmm. kinds of classes and I would do freelance articles and stuff. This was way before the internet. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, I would go to a bookstore and I would say, you know, Goddess 101 and people would show up because there were like two books available and right. you know, nothing else. And it was fun. It was a really fun way to uh, to earn a living while I was raising my kids back in the in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So I have a lifelong interest in Snow White Mm -hmm. as kind of an archetype. And I saw the movie when I was very young, I'm sure. And the thing that struck me about it as a kid was that she had dark hair and pale skin. And I am ridiculously pale. Like, I I will glow under moonlight. (laughs) And... (laughs) Back in the day before uh, my hair turned this appealing shade of gray, my hair was very dark. And Mm -hmm. so Snow White was the first kind of feminine archetype that I felt like represented me. That, Mm -hmm. you know, that she wasn't blonde. That was the main thing. She wasn't blonde, (laughs) you know. And at the time, like in the early 60s, there was an incredible bias Mm-hmm. for being blonde, yeah. you know, to the point that, like, you just kind of almost assumed that if you weren't blonde, and obviously this relates to everybody who, you know, who isn't white either mm-hmm. a lot of the time, that if you weren't blonde, that you were never going to meet you know, your handsome prince, it was never going to happen because you were the one that were discarded. Right. You know, you were the ugly stepsister or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I I really loved Snow White. And then, you know, as I got older and got kind of into the goddessy stuff, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but all the symbolism, you know, the apple and the black, white and red and all that stuff just really captivated me. And I just, I love the story. And As someone who's kind of got mixed feelings about Disney Uh at this point in my life, Snow White gets a special pass for me. (laughs) (laughs) We all have those nostalgia passes, right? (laughs) I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's problematic and we'll get into that too, but it's it's beautiful. It it Mm -hmm. is just a gorgeous piece of art. And I'm so impressed with the artists who made this incredible film. 
Yeah, the animation is stunning. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more of your perspective on it since I, it's not one of the ones of Disney that I most connected with. Uh-huh. You know, it was good. The brunette thing was definitely nice. I'm uh, I'm a brunette as well. But I, I feel like even when I was pretty young, I remember kind of thinking, because, you know, I'm, I'm young enough that by the time I was watching Disney, there were at least things like Aladdin and the Little Mermaid. Yes. And I remember even as a kid finding Snow White a little disappointing as a heroine (laughs) in terms of her level of activeness. So it is a stunning movie uh, in terms of the animation, but I definitely on this watch too didn't quite find myself uh, connecting with Snow White and what she does and what she's looking for. Well, I think, uh, to be honest, I connected with the queen. I mean, right. <laughs> I, you know, I liked her more too. <laughs> but it was, I, I liked that both of the characters that were supposed to be attractive were not blonde. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Like, there really wasn't anything else. I, I mean, later, you know, there was Aladdin and Pocahontas and so many other options mm-hmm. that people just with dark hair you yeah. know could choose to get excited about and and i i can yeah she's definitely an old-fashioned mm-hmm. heroine for sure snow white and the seven dwarfs was released in 1937 and stars adriana casalotti as snow white lucille laverne as the evil queen Harry Stockwell is the prince. And then uh, let's see, you've got assorted people as dwarves. I'll be honest, I uh, do not know any of these actors because I do not know anything <laughs> about people who did voice work in the 1930s. Gosh, I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, unfortunately just not one of my areas of expertise. You know, you're, you, I'll give you a pass for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll still recognize them uh, and give their names uh, in respect for the work that they did. Roy Atwell as Doc, uh, Pinto Kolvig as both Grumpy and Sleepy, Otis Harlan as Happy, Scotty Metra as Bashful, Billy Gilbert as Sneezy, and for Dopey, we have Eddie Collins and Jimmy McDonald both provided some of the vocalization for Dopey. I'll acknowledge all of them, (laughs) despite the fact that I cannot really say anything about them. That's all right. So the first proper segment, the enumeratio or recap, is where we just spend a little time talking through what happens in this movie. We begin with our visual representation of a storybook. It has some very nice gilding. It has some lovely illuminations. And it tells us that once upon a time, there was a princess named Snow White, whose stepmother forced her to work as a scullery maid. We kind of learned that she is, uh, you know, in this position, but we actually really see the queen before we see Snow White. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm sure I haven't watched it in at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I'd remembered little snippets of it, but didn't remember kind of what order they were in. And I was like, wow, she is really the star of the show. And no wonder that I was so impressed by yeah. her. Because she is gorgeous. Yeah. And she's clearly a, a person of power. Mm-hmm. And you kind of question, like, when I saw Snow White, I remember thinking, well, she's pretty, but she's not prettier than the right. queen. Right, yeah. You know, the, the <laughs> I queen actually think the queen is more interesting looking, certainly. Gorgeous. She's really gorgeous. So, And with those cheekbones and yeah. everything, you know, very glamorous. 
but one thing that I do want to say about like that first opening with the with the books and the illuminations is like those colors are yes. spot on. Yeah. Like they did not pick some kind of bright pinks and greens or something. And you get the feeling right away that this is not a movie specifically targeted towards children. Mm-hmm. It was inclusive of them for sure, but they were really trying to bring adults in. And I think part of that was the use of these really historically accurate colors, this palette that I think kind of added a more serious touch to it. Yeah, and that I do think also that it's it's also actually an accurate palette that red and blue mm-hmm. and gold would have been the colors that you would have most often seen in medieval illuminated manuscripts. Yeah, and again, you know, we have already mentioned the animation, but it really is, I think, a movie that you can watch essentially for the aesthetics. There are parts of the plot that are in some ways sort of light, but uh, that I think just the visuals alone are something that you can really kind of see and enjoy as art, uh, regardless of other aspects of the film. Yeah, I think honestly that it's the kind of movie that you could watch without even listening to it or paying attention to the story. But then you would miss the wonderful sound design that they did, which is phenomenal. So yeah, uh, let's give them a little credit too. Yes, definitely. So the queen has her magic mirror, and she has uh, the the slave in the magic mirror. Some interesting pieces of you know magical slavery happening here. She tells her the mirror the mirror man to come from the furthest space through wind and darkness, and uh, tell her who is the fairest of them all. And is told that despite uh, her rags, Snow White is nevertheless uh, fairer than she. Yeah. What do you? What do you think about those rags? I guess we'll get to that in a minute, huh? <laughs> I mean, they're, well, there they're certainly are rags. Um. <laughs> Part of this scene, you know, it's a very lonely castle. Yes. <laughs> she apparently only has the mirror to talk to. So, you know, you're kind of glad that she has the mirror for companionship. Do we want to talk about now like about her costume or do we want to wait and finish going through the kind of summary of the movie yeah why don't we go ahead and talk about the costume stuff i know you did oh some great that. yeah oh, i did i did okay so initially her design was to be kind of a, a frumpy middle-aged lady and mm-hmm. i assure you listeners i am myself a frumpy middle-aged <laughs> lady and so i say that with much affection but that was the original design and then after a movie called she mm-hmm. which was released in 1935 came out and it's this sort of weird fantasy drama with a kind of femme fatale mm. trope but the main character, she, is dressed almost identically. In fact, oh, it's wow. really clear huh. that they just ripped the whole design oh, right off of this character. And the woman who played she is Helen Gahagan or Gahagan Douglas. I'll spell that middle name, her maiden name, G-A-H-A-G-A-N mm-hmm. Douglas. I went down a whole rabbit hole checking out this woman. She's amazing. Uh, Mm. She ran against Nixon for senator of California. Really? Yes. And 
If any of you have heard the phrase tricky dick, she came up with that. Wow. Uh, she is an incredible person. She did all this amazing work against fascism. Huh. Uh, she is a very happily married woman. For some reason, had an affair with LBJ, but I'm not going to judge. I've done some stupid shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> When picking out men. So I'm, I'm going to give her a pass there. But um, anyway, I really recommend looking her up. But hmm. what's interesting about this is that in the plot of the movie She, part of what happens is that there's, you know, kind of a blustery dad mm -hmm. and a handsome young hero and, you know, a fragile but plucky ingenue. And part of the story is that she decides that she is going to keep the hero for herself and sacrifice the plucky young ingenue. Mm. And there's this whole thing that goes on that Disney was going to lift that whole plot huh. and insert it into Snow White. And there were whole things drawn and animated mm -hmm. of wow. the prince being stuck in the dungeon and oh, wow. turning down the queen's marriage proposal. <laughs> and the, like the animals were going to rescue him from the dungeon huh. and all this stuff. And then he was going to go and, and find Snow White. And they cut it all. I think that was wise. I don't think any of that needed to be in there. Mm -hmm. But part of what Disney was dealing with at the time was that this was being phrased as Disney's folly. Mm -hmm. Because nobody had ever done a full feature length animated movie before. Mm -hmm. Ever. The perceived wisdom was that it's just going to fail. It's going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. But I think a lot of this kind of appropriating that design had to do with him trying to make it be relevant in the 1930s. You know, he was kind of lifting from that. And we'll see that in some of the other, the other issues. Now, something else that I want to talk about mm -hmm. with this dress, because it, it's glorious with the snood and the, yeah. the lines and everything. Very medieval. Yes. And... You know, we'll see later that Snow White is not mm -hmm. dressed in that same medieval style. This is kind of part of an old trope going back to Shakespeare and before, where people in those kind of gothic medieval styles are considered not just old fashioned, but actually evil mm -hmm. because of you know, Henry VIII and what happened with Catholicism and Protestantism and everything else, that whole Gothic style and medieval style was associated with the Catholic Church. Right. And I want to be clear, people, I don't think Disney or any of his animators were sitting there thinking, oh, we're slamming on Catholics now. I don't <laughs> think that's how it works. I think that there's cultural influences that we right. pick up without realizing mm -hmm. it. And so part of that is old, bad, new, good. Mm -hmm. And to a lot of people who saw the movie, they would have understood right away that that queen was evil because mm -hmm. she had on that 
kind of gothic-y right. kind of a gown. And it, of course, also very much maps on to standard tropes, which are very much current tropes in the 1930s. They uh, are, I would say, at least in some circles, uh, people no longer accept these as valid now. But of course, tropes about the Middle Ages having been the Dark Ages, uh, the Middle Ages as this period that was uh, full of essentially intolerance and violence, and then the Renaissance as being this moment of light and cultural efflorescence and all of a sudden everything was fine and everyone was very happy and as I've talked about many times on this podcast that is uh, a not a great representation of the (laughs) renaissance or the middle ages and uh, also ignores a lot of continuities between these periods but those very much also would have been things that would have been in the back of people's minds uh, as well as these kind of conventions of yeah that had been longer standing yeah Snow White is scrubbing the outdoor stairs, which I love as the task that is assigned to her because it seems sort of uh, sort of fruitless. Well, she's the only other person in the castle, so what? <laughs> right. I mean, the the practicalities, I will say, of the entire way this society is structured don't make a great mm-hmm. deal of sense. There are no subjects in this kingdom. There are no servants in this castle. There's this prince. Where does he come from? What does he belong to? What does he rule? There is no explanation of any of these structures whatsoever. And as I said, the the desertedness of the castle is very odd. A castle like this would be would require dozens of perhaps even you know hundreds of servants not to mention you know a court that there would be other members of the nobility that would be there the kind of desertion of this castle is sort of bizarre but uh, i guess was not the the focus of the film well i i can explain human beings are really difficult to animate Mm. and they had a really difficult time animating all of the human characters, particularly the prince, which is why you only see him twice. Huh. Interesting. Because, and, you know, as I was talking about earlier, that whole plot in the dungeon, like the reason they decided not to do it is because they could not figure out a way to make this sort of look like a tense dramatic scene Mm -hmm. with the limits of what they understood about animation at the time. And, you know, animation was really in its beginning stages. One part of this whole project, one of the artists started a life drawing group in his home. And life drawing, for those of you who who aren't artists, means that you you go to a room and you draw someone from life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that person is clothed, sometimes they're not. It's incredibly valuable as an artist to Mm -hmm. just be able to sit and stare and draw at somebody. And uh, Walt found out about this and then started hosting these life drawing sessions at the studio and Mm. then added a whole bunch of other art classes. Oh, wow. And so then one of the things that they finally figured out was that for the human beings that they needed to rotoscope. And what rotoscope means is that they filmed human beings doing human being stuff Mm -hmm. and then the animators drew directly over those Mm -hmm. frames rather than just trying to animate from scratch that's the logical reason why it's so deserted okay because yeah it's not worth doing a bunch of background people right which yeah totally makes sense but uh, just watching it is sort of bizarre to see this deserted castle The prince appears, he uh, climbs over a wall and just kind of like watches her slightly creepily for a while. Uh, He is 
He is supposed to be charming. He starts singing to her. He says, you know, I, I've only, I only have but one song. So uh, also not the most <laughs> creative gentleman. Uh, I personally do not find the prince especially compelling as a romantic hero. I find him rather dull. But I also, to be honest, find Snow White rather dull. So <laughs> uh, I guess uh, they deserve each other, I suppose. It seems like they're happy together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the queen, now that she knows that uh, Snow White is fairer than she, is now set on having her killed. The the obvious, of course, commentary to be made here is about the fact that there is, of course, some really interesting gender dynamics in the fact that her sole motivation, it's not power, it's not money, it's vanity, that the only reason she wants to kill Snow White is because Snow White is apparently prettier than she is, according to a magic mirror. Yeah, and you kind of have to wonder, who is she trying to be pretty for? You Since know, there's, no the- there. <laughs> <laughs> there's no one there. It's like the magic mirror is like... Are they like, you know, nagging her? Are they just like, <laughs> are they like tired of dealing with with this lady and just are like, yeah, yeah, uh, you're not the fairest anymore. It is a strange dynamic, but one that I, as a little girl in the 60s, just accepted mm-hmm. right. that that the need to be beautiful was paramount in mm-hmm you know, in any female type person. And of course, this was perfectly logical that that they would want to do this. And of course, also the idea that beauty is something objective, right? That the magic mirror is Mm -hmm. presented as just having this essentially objective knowledge about who is the most beautiful person and that there is an objective answer to that question, that it's not something that depends on your personal preferences and taste in terms of what you find beautiful. Yeah, it's definitely a two-dimensional idea of beauty. Yeah there. And, you know, you can kind of say, well, the movie is sort of a warning against that particular style of vanity. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see that as a positive thing. Right. That, you know, you're you're obsessed with your own image in a mirror. And it, again, you know, a common trope that, you know, women are obsessed with vanity and that this is their downfall and everything else when, you know, we know that women are put in a position where if they don't make themselves as attractive mm-hmm. as possible, that then they're just flat out ignored. So you can't win. You can't win right. that one. Right. <laughs> I mean, and even, you know, treated differently at your job if you're perceived mm-hmm. as not putting sufficient effort into your appearance as a woman. And of course, the film very much kind of trucks in that, right, in that it is this very obvious double standard in that it's so on the one hand, vanity is bad, but on the other hand, beauty is valued above all else. And this character also, her goodness and her beauty are linked uh, kind of thematically in certain ways. So uh, it's, it is very much kind of trying to have things both ways. The queen now uh, tries to have her killed. She tells the huntsman to take Snow White into the forest and kill her and bring back her heart in a box box is a nice picture of a heart on it. We'll talk more about the box later. And Snow White is sent off into the forest to pick wildflowers. And she has a new dress now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why she has a new dress, practically speaking, in terms of the film. It's because they wanted to put her in something pretty and not in her literal rags the entire time, I suppose. I guess. 
I I think it was supposed to show maybe that she's not working, so she doesn't have her rags on, but mm-hmm. why she's traipsing through the woods in her best dress, right. we're not really clear on. Right. Yeah. So she has her fancy dress and is wandering around the woods. She's picking flowers. She's having a full-on conversation with a bird. And the huntsman goes to kill her. She does not defend herself, but she does express shock. And uh, this is sufficient to make him feel guilty. And so he doesn't kill her and uh, tells her, you know, the queen is jealous of you. She wants you dead. So run away. Don't come back. She flees, and this is a really, I think, visually interesting scene that she kind of like falls into a swamp. There are these creepy trees, there are some crocodiles, but in the light of day, these kind of horror eyes, which seem very sinister, reveal themselves as instead being a panoply of cute woodland creatures. (laughs) That's a cute scene. Yeah. I remember being scared for her Mm -hmm. and then feeling this real sense of relief. Yeah. You know, when all the little animals came out like that, that really packs a wallop. Yeah. I think emotionally, I think they do a real good job of building tension there for sure. Yeah. And this is also, I think, the earliest example in of what will become a very obvious Disney trope of uh, the kind of animal sidekicks uh, slash accompaniments and the, you know, particular kind of uh, connection or, uh, with animals that the kind of Disney princess tends to have. Well, I think it's certainly the first time in a full-length feature like this. Right. But it it was a fairly common trope, actually, in Disney short form before that. There's one called The Goddess of Spring. Uh, There's a few other cartoons that are uh, horrifically racist and sexist. Uh, But, you know, even when you look at, like, Mickey Mouse, Mm -hmm. it all kind of stems from that. And and it's because animals were easier to animate. Mm -hmm. You don't run into that uncanny valley right territory with the animals so right but i it certainly did it in such a way that almost every other female archetype heroine after that you know is supposed to be able to get along with small woodland creatures right and then that goes back to you know mythology persephone Mm -hmm. and and everything else yeah she has uh, all of these all of these animals who lead her to a cottage in the woods, which she describes as being adorable and just like a doll's house. She fixes her hair before she knocks at the door. Phew. <laughs> God forbid anybody see her without her hair having been fixed. Then since nobody is home, she just goes ahead and goes inside. And uh, based on the size of the chairs, she assumes that children live there, since uh, she does not seem to have a concept of there being any other option. She comments on the uh, sort of the messiness, as well as the fact that the cobweb-encrusted broom means that there probably is not a lot of sweeping going on in this household, and uh, guesses that there might be orphans. And she then cleans the house, because uh, that's what women do. No comment. Right. <laughs> I do like that she delegates some of the labor to the miscellaneous animals. Same. And I love the effectiveness of squirrel tails as brooms, apparently. Right. <laughs> and this is the whistle while you work song. But it is very much like, oh, okay, so she does all the cleaning. She gets some people to help with the cleaning, but she has to direct them. There's even a moment where I think these squirrels are trying to sweep dust under the rug and she has to correct them. And so, you know, there is this delegation, but it's also very much that she still has to do the emotional labor of instructing people on the right way to clean, even if she's not literally doing it all herself. 
Not only that, but then they sweep it into the mouse's hole and then the mouse has to come out and yell at them. Right, right. The poor mouse. <laughs> the poor mouse. <laughs> There's also a spider, which is great that they're trying to clean up this cobweb and the spider's like, oh, uh, yeah. excuse me? Yeah. I was here first. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is just as much my house as theirs. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We meet the dwarves who are mining for miscellaneous gems and singing a little kind of bit about digging and about diamonds. But then precisely as the clock strikes five, they are very, very orderly. They sing the hi-ho, it's home from work we go song. I find the dwarves also sort of logistically bizarre in that it is very (laughs) unclear what they are doing with these diamonds. They just are kind of locking them up. And I will, of course, note this is one of my kind of usual uh, things that I tend to notice as somebody who is both Jewish and who studies anti-Judaism, that the fact that you have this group of people who are fairly large-nosed compared to other characters in the film who seem to be mostly portrayed as collecting and hoarding wealth is questionable. I hear you. I hear you. And... I got a lot of Jewish blood in me, so I, I feel you. There are so many things wrong <laughs> right? with the dwarves, oh, so yes. we'll get into that. But pretty much every horrible racial trope that you can yeah. assign to somebody, an ableist trope, you know, we'll get into dopey and everything else. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. I feel like in terms of the practicality of mining and hoarding gems... I do kind of wonder why there aren't any in the house, but... (laughs) And they're so isolated. It's not like you see them going and trading or anything, even. It's very odd. uh, Yeah, I don't know. My only guess is that they're mining them for a dragon so the dragon doesn't eat them or something. That's all I can come up with. (laughs) I don't know. But I I agree with you about the anti-Semitic overtones there, I, I think that you know so much in the ether yeah and it's not like disney doesn't have a long and questionable history of uh, assorted problematic racial tropes so bad yes snow white meanwhile goes to explore upstairs Uh, she's followed by the animals i do i do love the turtle that we have this uh, little kind of uh, theme that the turtle is obviously slower than all of the other animals and the turtle will you know climb up but of course like just as the turtle makes it wherever it's making it everybody else is turning back and it gets you know knocked around and kind of retreats into its shell i feel very bad for the turtle yeah yeah she finds the beds, which have the names carved on them. Upon seeing Sleepy, it's like, oh, I am kind of sleepy. And goes and takes a nap, uh, stretched along three entire beds. Uh, I do appreciate the representation of, like, afternoon naps as, uh, as the way to go. <laughs> since, as we know from the dwarves' clock, it is precisely 5 p.m. Well, she just cleaned the whole freaking oh, yeah. house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't blame her for being tired. But I, you know, you do have to wonder a little about her sense of self-preservation that I guess she thought they were all children and so was not worried about what would happen when they found her sleeping. I don't think I could sleep in that kind of situation. I don't think I could either, but her sense of self-preservation is in general, I think, not fantastic. Good point. Good point. (laughs) 
So yeah, so this definitely seemed odd, but I feel like just paled for me in comparison to the even more obvious example of a kind of failure of an instinct of self-preservation later. Excellent point. The dwarves get back home and see that there are lights on in the house. Uh, They kind of sneak on in and are, you know, very concerned about the fact that also there's, it's it's clean. There's not this dirty work afoot because the house has been cleaned and there's a lot of like, my my cup, the sugar, the sugar that's been like encrusted in it is gone because somebody washed it. Well, to be fair, if I came in my house and somebody had cleaned it all, I would freak out too. I also would freak out. Uh, I, on the other hand, I feel like my house is not quite so filthy that it would be immediately no. <laughs> apparent that somebody had cleaned it. But you know, I mean, I remember like when I was a kid being like irritated because the cleaning lady would move things around and all of that. Definitely. So especially, you know, since it means somebody has been in their house, I, you can't totally blame them. And listeners, I can see Sarah's room and I can vouch that there are no spooky cobwebs hanging (laughs) in the corners. There isn't big piles of dust all over everything. It looks very nice. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. And yeah, so, you know, I mean, there, well, you can't see the floor where because I have a very furry dog uh, there and I have hardwood floors, there are often these kind of just like tumbleweeds of dog fur that reappear moments after I've swept. So (laughs) there's really no fully getting rid of them, especially in the summer where she sheds extra. (laughs) Well, I feel you there. I got three dogs. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The dwarves did not have that excuse, though. They did not have a bunch of dogs shedding all over their floor. No, they did not. They start to search the house. They do not notice the animals at first, although the animals, especially like the birds, are just like fucking with them, essentially. Yes. Which I kind of enjoy. They realize that the intruder is in the bedroom. They kind of bully Dopey into being the one who goes upstairs. I have so many feelings about this. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. We see Snow White is kind of yawning and stretching under a blanket, which, you know, freaks them out. They kind of all flee out of the house. Uh, Dopey actually gets stuck inside and then he runs out, but he's like covered in pots and pans because of his like failure to try and escape. And then they start hitting him, which is awful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of ableist tropes with the dwarves in general, but Dopey in particular, I think is being portrayed as in some way neurodiverse and in a way that is very much infantilizing and mocking of him and it's not great. I agree with you. You know, as an autistic person, mm-hmm. mutism and autism, it's a such a complicated subject that we're not right. going to be able to get into fully here. But I will say that I feel like Dopey is redeemed. Mm-hmm. I don't like the way he's treated. I don't like him being bullied. But I think he's actually the smartest dwarf in the house, Hmm. really, when it comes right down to it. And, And we'll talk about him more later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we will continue the conversation. And he is able to, you know, communicate with them, essentially, mm-hmm. even though he uh, he does not speak. And uh, he tells them, essentially, that the monster is currently asleep in their beds. They venture back inside, planning to kill this monstrous intruder. To be fair, the way we have uh, the animation is done, at least the way that Snow White is stretches, you can't totally blame them for thinking that she is something kind of monstrous. But Doc then does pull back the sheet to reveal Snow White. And uh, at that point, they're like, oh, it's it's a girl. She's pretty. It's like an angel. We shouldn't murder her. Hi. Although we do have the one dissonant voice from Grumpy, who says that she's a female. 
Some things never change. Oh. All females oh. is poison and full of wicked wiles. It's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah. And again, you know, this, to bring up that movie She again, mm-hmm. this was based on a book where the phrase, uh, she who must be obeyed mm-hmm. comes from. And so, you know, this whole misogynistic trope, you know, it just goes right through. And it's too bad that Grumpy had to get all misogynist because if he hadn't, he would be my favorite dwarf for sure. You know, I understand how he feels. I don't want strangers in my house. Who the heck is this? They touched all my stuff. Get him out of here. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Why should we risk our lives for this person that we don't know? So yeah, you can't blame him for a lot. And The one thing I will say in favor of the film is that his very overt misogyny is something that he has a kind of arc of getting over to some extent. But, you know, I mean, the film is this this kind of dynamic that you often see in films where there are a number of misogynist tropes that are just quietly accepted, but that certain kinds of overt vocalized misogyny are considered to be, like, not okay and a sign of a person who has to either is a villain or who has to be kind of fixed in some way. Yeah, that's that's a good point. He's he doesn't get a lot of accolades for his right. uh, crummy statements. Yeah. Right, and everybody does dis. The other dwarves all do disagree with him. Mm-hmm. She wakes up, uh, says like, "Oh, you're quote little men." She guesses their names and introduces herself. And really very much we also have the the way that she talks to them is extremely patronizing, in particular with Grumpy, that she, like, you know, he, like, says something and she's like, you must be Grumpy. <laughs> this is very much a, the beginning of a process where the way she talks... <laughs> my cat just leapt onto my desk and walked over my entire computer, as she occasionally does. It's a beautiful kitty. I don't blame her. <laughs> yes, and she's she's 19, so she can do whatever she wants. Do whatever she wants. That's right. right. But yeah, so we have the beginning of this use of language and of behaviors in the, on the part of Snow White related to the dwarves, which are extremely infantilizing in a way that is, of course, very ableist, right? This assumption that because these people are, you know, are, you know, have dwarfism and are the size that we one might associate with children that they are and should be treated as children. Yeah, it's, it's kind of painful. However, their house was a mess. <laughs> I yes. Mean, I mean, like, you know, I have walked into a house full of bachelors mm-hmm. and had that same response. <laughs> <laughs> Not where, not where I cleaned the whole house, but where I really thought of them as children, mm-hmm. because they clearly didn't understand, you know, the basics of taking care of yourself. And so, like, I wonder how that scene would have played differently if she'd come in and everything was, you know, clean. Right. 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 If they, if they had intruded. their shit together. Yeah. Yeah. And she just intruded. Then she would she be like, oh, hi, sorry. Right. You know, instead of I just cleaned up all your mess. Right. You know. <laughs> but which, of course, she did not. She was not asked to do. And people obviously no, have. No, she was not. <laughs> you know, and not that I'm defending the level of cleanliness of that home. But. Nobody asked her. Nobody asked her. People have different <laughs> preferences in terms of their cleanliness level. Absolutely. 
And she is, you know, an intruder. She does at this point, she introduces herself and uh, they realize that, you know, she is the princess. Grumpy thinks that they should send her away because, you know, they're going to get killed. And I don't and I don't blame him for that. Yeah. But uh, uh, the others are uh, more won over by her and are in particular tempted by her offer to keep house in exchange for being allowed to stay and for baking the gooseberry pies uh, really clinch it at the end. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, if somebody came over and said, I'll bake you a pie every day, I wouldn't say no. (laughs) That might be one of the few things that might uh, compel me to allow a roommate to stay. But on the other hand, I make a pretty good pie. So I'm not sure I would... uh... Well, there you go. (laughs) It wouldn't wouldn't work so well for you. It might for me. (laughs) But uh, yeah, but it is again, you know, the obviously very gender dynamic of here's a woman. So she's going to clean it. It's painful. It's painful. I'm making light of it because it's so dang painful. And again, as somebody who grew up in, in the 60s and then the 70s, who didn't have a real fondness for cooking. Mm -hmm. To me, this was just another sign that I clearly was never going to find love in Mm -hmm. my life. Snow White holds up this really kind of impossible ideal, as they all do. Like, first of all, how does a princess learn how to bake? Right. (laughs) I mean, I guess she's the only servant in this giant castle, so we can presume that she is actually baking, making dinner for the queen every night. Who taught her? <laughs> That's such a good question. Yeah, who who taught her? So, because it's before the days of recipe blogs online, <laughs> right? Right. Clearly, it's just her feminine intuition right. that taught her how to bake gooseberry pies. Apparently, so okay. So she convinces them with the magic of of pie. Yes, and and actually, I will just say one more thing about the cleaning dynamic, which is that it does yeah. also normalize the expectation that. Girls should be taught to clean and to cook and boys shouldn't because eventually, because basically their mother will do that for them and then eventually their wife will do that for them. And why else would they consent to marry if it wasn't to get a live-in maid, right? Right. So, uh, you know, that definitely we're kind of normalizing that. Yes. So she also has to uh, teach them or at least instruct them to wash their hands. They do know how to, or well, Doc knows how the kind of mechanics of how to go about washing one's hands and and instruct the rest. But we're back to the the infantile. Yes. Infantilizing. <laughs> that yeah. word is hard. Infantilizing of the people who don't look just like her. Yeah, the way she talks to them, she's very much talking to them like children. You know, and as you were saying before, on the one hand, you know, they they clearly didn't wash their hands and her Mm -hmm. expectation that they might not have is not entirely unreasonable based on the state of their house. But the the way she speaks to them, I think, is very much it is the way you speak to a child. Do you think that this is all to show her as mother material, that she is an appropriate, that she's worthy of the prince because she can be a good mother? I think in some ways, yeah, that it is very much like this is what is the ideal woman is uh, she should mm-hmm. be beautiful and also she can cook and also she can clean and also she is good at childcare. So it is a very, very traditional representation of what a woman should be like. And then, you know, that she, who is her role model, right? The right. queen, who obviously is the opposite of that 
kind of maternal ideal. Oh, yes. So anyway, yeah. where did she learn it from? But, right. Okay. <laughs> Back at the castle, the queen asks the mirror, who is the fairest of them all, and uh, the, the mirror is a real narc here. The mirror is like, whoops, sorry. <laughs> it's Snow White, she's still alive. She's still the fairest. And this is where she is. And you've got a pig's heart. I feel like the mirror did not need to be quite this forthcoming. And I'm worried about the huntsman now. <laughs> right. Right. And this is actually something that does get dealt with in some adaptations. The show Once Upon mm. a Time, and I think it actually does come uh, up that like the huntsman character gets ki- you know, is killed or cursed or something by the queen. Mm. Which well, makes sense. Yeah. At least in this movie it appears that she's just so focused on Snow White that right. maybe Maybe she doesn't have a chance to hurt him. Yeah, he might get lucky in that she goes immediately after Snow White and has all of this prep for that. And so it's, yeah, when mm-hmm. when would she have time to kill him? So yeah, he, he might right. end up getting away after all. Uh, we'll, we'll hope for the best. <laughs> she plans to disguise herself as an old woman and uh, she's got assorted beakers, etc. So I guess, you know, this is, so this is the cooking that she's doing. Uh, so she certainly has these kind of, you Good know, chemistry, point. you Good know, point. skills. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That she can, yeah, cook up a potion, which uh, she, you know, mixes with thunder and is transformed into an older woman. And I don't understand why, if she can do all of this as a magic potion, why she can't transform herself to be just a tiny bit prettier than Snow White and solve the whole problem that way. (laughs) Well, I don't think it lasts. I think that it's supposed to be a timed thing. There's so many questions about this until, you know, you think about the tropes involved, of course. And again, getting getting back to that She movie, mm-hmm. at the end of She, spoiler alert, if you're going to watch this movie, um, you might want to stop listening for the next three minutes or something. <laughs> but at the end of the movie, she ages like she had this uh, eternal life kind of thing. She was eternally young and mm-hmm. beautiful. And then at the very end of the movie, she loses all that and ages right in front of the hero's eyes and dies. But, you know, it does beg a few questions. One is that, yes, Snow White would have recognized the queen in her other form, but she's told to look out for a witch. And this woman does kind of check all those boxes of being a witch. So I, you know, kind of wondering why she picked that form at all. But... You know, when you look at it in kind of that maiden mother crone archetype, then it starts to make a lot more sense. Right. But yeah, practically speaking, I feel like, you know, dressing up as a like, I don't know, sort of normal looking young woman would have been uh, a kind of better strategic move. Or even a male peddler or something. Yeah, she's not very smart. Not a very smart woman. Nobody is that bright, (laughs) uh, really, in uh, in this film. No, in this movie, no. (laughs) Uh, Except the birds. The birds are brilliant. (laughs) Yes, the birds. The birds really are like kind of bringing it in this Mm -hmm. film. And she plans also for a to make a poisoned apple, which is going to keep Snow White forever in the sleeping death. Back at the cottage, the dwarves and Snow White are playing music and having a grand time. Even Grumpy is sort of grudgingly participating. They ask her to tell them a love story, to which she tells them the story of it just basically boils down to this one time I kind of looked at this guy from a distance. <laughs> hey, you know, when I was that age, I might have had the same... Yeah love story. Right, yeah, and she sings the Someday My Prince Will Come song. Mm -hmm. 
that, you know, eventually, eventually this will turn into more of an actual love story than it is at the moment. They've got another elaborate clock, which informs them that it is now past bedtime. They give Snow White all of the beds upstairs. I know. Which is very nice. sweet. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they're they're preserving her her maidenly maidenhood, right? It wouldn't be proper. For her to share the room, right. For her to share the room with a bunch of adult males. Right. But you do have to kind of feel bad for them as they kind of slot themselves into various, like, places throughout the house. Uh, One of them is using Dopey's butt as a pillow, which honestly is the kind of looks like the most comfortable choice. It does. And, you know, this is where you start to realize that Dopey is the smartest one. Because as they are all discussing about her using all the beds, he sneaks off and grabs the pillow first. Yes. It, it doesn't, he doesn't get to keep it because they're bullies. Right. But he does parse quickly that he should go get that pillow. And now, you know, why she didn't just throw some pillows and blankets down, who yes. knows, but... Yeah, she it really does not need cinema. all of the pillows and blankets. No, uh, it's not the no, most she's just like, oh, on her part. Oh, thank you, and closes the door and goes to sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She does, however, say her prayers that she blesses the dwarves and asks for her dreams to come true and for Grumpy to like her. And again, I think he would have liked her more if she'd sent down a few pillows. Uh, You know, God God helps those who help themselves, Snow White. (laughs) Yes, agreed. Meanwhile, the queen is making her poisoned apple and, you know, the, it is very dramatically represented, you know, it turns black and there's like a thing and there's like a skull that appears on it and she has to magically turn it back to red so it'll, you know, look something, something that a normal human might be willing to eat. And she actually has a bird as well. She has a raven who's kind of hanging out. I love that raven so much. I love the raven, but the raven is clearly not as bright as the other birds because the raven has watched this entire thing, but then immediately tries to eat the apple. And it's like, really? Haven't you been paying attention? Well, yes and no. I mean, she holds it out to him and she and, it, and the raven shrinks back. Mm. So the raven looks interested, but... But kind of realizes, yeah, at some point. Clearly, that raven looked worried to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it looked very worried. It's like, it kind of, it looked to me like it was going, oh, lady, you have gone round the bend. Right. Is is what I got from that guy. <laughs> yeah. And she, she does double check before leaving it what the antidote might be to this poisoned apple and confirms that it is love's first kiss and says, you know, oh, don't thank goodness. Don't have to worry about that. They'll just bury her alive immediately. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, no no cause for concern there. She takes off. I also like that on her way out, there is a skeleton that seems to have died reaching for a pitcher of water. Oh, I know. And she's going to crack thirsty at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, to, just to show us that she, even though she looks like a sweet little granny, she's still the horrible person. Oh, yes. That we know her to be. Oh, yes. And again, talking about these kind of ideas about beauty, that I think it is interesting that although this is obviously meant to be temporary, we do now have this setup created now that there is a match between your inner and outer state, right? That for the remainder of the film, we see that the one who is good is visually beautiful, and the one who is evil is visually not conventionally beautiful. Yeah. The next morning, as they leave for work, they all, uh, all of the dwarves warn Snow White to be careful of strangers. 
If only she had listened. She kisses them on the head. Uh, Dopey, it's this kind of weird thing that he, uh, he first of all kind of angles to be kissed on the lips and then also keeps like running back for additional kisses. Again, the smartest dwarf in the house. The smartest, yeah. And it is It is sort of sweet. And, you know, he is like, yeah, but it is this kind of weird, like, if that were a, like an adult man doing that under many other representations, it would be creepy. Yeah. I'll tell you what I like about that, though, is she doesn't do it. True. She has boundaries. She has boundaries. She established the boundary. And... It's not like he retaliates. Oh, no. True. He just, he's like, yeah, kiss me on the forehead again. Yeah. yeah, kiss me on the forehead again. So, and Dopey is supposed to be young. Right. True. Dopey is supposed to be like a, a teenager. Because he's the only one who does not have a beard, I believe. That's right. He doesn't have a beard. He's supposed to be like a very young dwarf. Mythical dwarf physiology is not real clear. Right. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, we don't know how old Dopey really is. But, you know, he kind of is is meant to be like yeah. the childlike way that she relates to all of the dwarves, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of liked that. <laughs> Even Grumpy does act, does uh, also, you know, wish her well and gets a, mm-hmm. gets a kiss on the head. And, uh, you know, it's it is nice that Grumpy is coming around. I appreciate that. It is. But what I noticed is like they had to be careful and not make Grumpy suddenly into happy. Right. Because that would have reduced all this, you know, fun tension they had going on. So right after he gets kissed on the forehead, he trips, he falls, he bangs his head on the bridge, and then he gets soaking wet and he has all these reasons to be grumpy again. And so then he... Right. He stomps off. Right. And he's also very grudging about the whole thing. You know, he's he doesn't want to express mm-hmm. his emotions. No, but he did clean his head off he before did. he went over there and took his hat off. So. He did. <laughs> the queen makes her way over. Uh, she's followed by vultures, which really, you know, should be a giveaway of something. Yeah, kind of a tip off. Right. Snow is making a pie. Uh, she, I guess, is making each of them individual pies because she puts Grumpy's name on this one. Yeah, she's an overachiever. Yes, uh, really trying to, you know, uh, kind of, I don't know, maybe she's worried that it's only on a trial basis. They've allowed her to stay right. and she's really got to sell it. <laughs> the health department would probably not be thrilled at the level of animal involvement in food preparation, but they're very Probably cute. not, but, well, that's a whole other issue. But <laughs> right. <laughs> the queen arrives. In addition to being a stranger and a woman who looks like a stereotypical witch, she is also the most creepy and sinister and unconvincing person, you know, villain that I have ever seen. She, or, you know, unconvincing in the sense of convincing the person that, you know, she's not in fact a villain. She keeps, you know, kind of chuckling in this very sinister way. She's like, oh, the men prefer apple pies. Try an apple. (laughs) The woodland creatures, they get it. They attack her. She doesn't take the cue that if all of the animals hate you, there's something wrong with you. And she shoes them out. And, uh, you know, the, and then, you know, when the queen is like, oh, my heart, she's like, oh, yes, of course, come inside. <laughs> and the animals then at this point, realizing that she has no instinct for self-preservation, uh, go and rush off to fetch the dwarves to uh, save her. The queen also tells Snow that it's a magic wishing apple that will make all of her dreams come true. 
And it's just so weird because she's clearly a little bit repelled and turned off by this person who is creepy, but she also completely believes that everything she's saying is true. Yeah, the witch rolled high on her charisma score. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's obviously plot, but, you know, it would be more convincing if she was more normal seeming. I mean, she just seems so obviously sinister. She, of course, eats the apple, immediately says, I feel strange, and then, you know, falls down in her coma, essentially. And and this this is really why Snow White doesn't speak to me. I mean, she's... Mm-hmm. She's not very active. Her main thing that she seems to do, her most active thing she seems to do is cleaning. And uh, she also really is, like, not that bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really, I mean, to say she's a two-dimensional character is kind of giving it more credit than it right. deserves, really. You know, she she's a bundle of expectations in a pretty package. Right. Is. pretty much what she is and you know the witch is a far more compelling character oh yeah you know i think it's possible to watch this movie and go well i kind of like the witch i just don't have to be that evil and vain right and you know then i can roll my castle and talk to my friend in the mirror so you know if you're gonna pick a female role model out of this movie I suggest that you pick the queen. I I would agree with that, yes. (laughs) The best role model is, of course, still the assorted woodland creatures. Absolutely. They go and fetch the dwarves. The dwarves at first are like, why are these creatures all attacking us? But figure out at some point that it's because they're trying to get them to go back and rescue Snow White. They are brought back and uh, so they all come back the they kind of see the witch escaping and all pursue her we've got our kind of classic disney we've got to kill off the villain but we don't want any of the heroes to actually actively kill the villain this scene is so gorgeous it is yeah i feel like from an artistic point of view just everything about it the the animation the painting the the special effects they used Mm -hmm. for the lightning, the water. Oh my gosh, the water. How did they animate water this way? Like all throughout the movie. I don't think water was animated that well again for probably 30 or 40 Mm -hmm. years. It's just glorious. And then, you know, the music and the sound effects, just incredible. And that beautiful, long, slow, lazy glide of the vultures. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) She is killed uh, in the process of she's kind of trying to knock over a boulder to to kill the dwarves. And uh, instead, uh, you know, lightning hits and she's already sort of off balance because she's trying to push this boulder. And uh, she is uh, knocked off the cliff and kills. And the vultures are the vultures are thrilled, of course. Now, that same thing with the boulder happens in the movie She. Hmm. It's not she who deals with the boulder, but that whole yeah kind of like boulder idea yeah is all part of that. Just mm-hmm. you know, shameless <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to shameless watch this. stealing from a yeah. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's a fun movie. The dwarfs return, find that Snow White is dead, and they hold a vigil at her bed. Even Grumpy is crying. The animals are also mourning, but they're not letting the animals inside to do so, which I don't think is very nice. 
No. But they do fashion a glass and gold coffin, uh, which is now outside, and so they can all uh, hold their vigil there. And meanwhile, the prince, it just says, he, like, looked for Snow White, and then he hears that there's this lady in a coffin and is like maybe he'll check her out (laughs) so the prince arrives singing while the other the animals and dwarves are bringing their offerings of flowers the coffin which does not have a lid i thought i think it does i guess yeah it looks at some point like it does but we skip the bit where they took off the lid yeah that's what happened yeah they don't show you yeah they don't show you the lid being removed yeah yeah he kisses her it you know takes a minute and at first they're very disappointed but she does indeed wake up since these two people who have met exactly one time for three (laughs) minutes are apparently (laughs) deeply in love with one another and everybody's very happy including all the animals and the dwarves the dwarves all get a last kiss on the head from her as she is uh, uh taken away toward this distant castle which is set up so that it kind of looks like it's sort of in heaven it's it's a little strange yeah, yeah it's sort of on top of clouds it's kind of bizarre and it's not clear to me whose castle it is either is i mean it i the, assume is the prince's but that's only because she keeps singing that the prince is going to take her away to his castle Mm. yeah i mean it seems like hers is closer is all i'm getting at (laughs) right yes but well but again i'm very unclear about what the geopolitics are right of who exactly rules what is she like she should be now queen right right by virtue of inheritance i mean you you would think yes you would think yeah yeah her and the birds right (laughs) It's like, you know, actually, let's go to let's go to my castle and I am in charge yeah. now and you are my consort. But that doesn't That's seem entirely right. like how it's working. We'll bring the dwarves and all their jewels and uh, yeah. we'll have we'll have a nice time. Very wealthy yeah. kingdom. We are informed, uh, however, though, that they do live happily ever after uh, wherever in whichever kingdom that may be. Yes. So let's kind of delve in now to some of the historical elements of the film in the Vera at Falso section. Given that this is, of course, not a film that is presuming to be a representation of a particular place and time, I would not say exactly necessarily that this film is, quote, getting things wrong in the same way as I might for other works of historical fiction. But I think it'll be interesting to talk through some of the uh, ways in which this does and doesn't resonate with historical realities. First, I want to talk a little bit about some of the aesthetics of this film. We've talked a little bit about the costumes. Is there anything that you wanted Mm -hmm. to add to that as well? Oh my goodness, yes. So um, uh, we've talked a lot about the queen's outfit. You know, then when she turns into the the kind of crone witch hag, then she just gets a very simple black cloak. Mm -hmm. You know, Snow White, you know, her dress, and there's a few online, there's a few people who critique her dress historically. And in fact, there's uh, one woman who did a video where she tried to make a historically accurate representation mm-hmm. of what Snow White would have worn, assuming that, you know, she's a noblewoman or, or a princess of like 14th or 15th century Germany, mm-hmm. I think is what they finally decided on. You know, obviously her shoes are 1930s shoes and, you know, the little bow in her hair and her hairstyle. The collar that she and the queen use are, you know, both much closer to Elizabethan period. Mm -hmm. So they do a lot of mix and match with the 
the dresses styles. But what really interests me about the costuming is the dwarves, mm -hmm. because they are wearing a Phrygian cap. And the Phrygian cap, also called the Liberty cap, it goes back to like ancient Greece mm -hmm. and possibly before and was known as the kind of cap that freed slaves would wear. Huh. And then during the French Revolution, the revolutionaries adopted the Phrygian cap as a sign that they were revolutionaries. And then it got called the Liberty cap. Mm. So that cap has represented kind of workers and mm. workers' rights for millennia. And, you know, the fact that the dwarves are, are wearing them, it has a lot to do with the fact that dwarves and gnomes are kind of mixed up. They're kind mm -hmm. of the same thing. And what we think of as mythical dwarves, we should probably be calling gnomes. Mm -hmm. It's a little less, I feel like, ableist. You know, there's a lot of tropes in terms of dwarfism that are inaccurate. But one of the things that the gnomes are always wearing these Phrygian caps because mm -hmm. they are always part of the working class. Mm. They are never part of the ruling class. And in Hollywood at the time, and again, let me be clear, I don't think there was some sort of uh, conspiracy. I don't think anybody was sitting there going, oh, we're going to make the dwarves look like socialists. I don't think that was it at all. <laughs> but nonetheless, in Los Angeles and Hollywood, like what we think of now as democratic socialism was having a huge moment. Yeah. And in 1934, a... Democratic Socialist ran for governor mm -hmm. and was beaten due to, you know, shenanigans yeah. by the powers that be, as always seems to happen. And for me, you know, the fact that the dwarves, they work so hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're clearly independent yeah. and they're willing to buck authority I like that. The, I like in some ways their adherence to like, this is when we clock out. Like it's, you know, it's like, you know, we, we yes. have our good union jobs. And if you expect us to work any longer, we, we get overtime pay. That's right. And you know what, though? The animators were not unionized. Mm, right. And it wasn't when after this movie came out, the first cartoonists and animators union was formed in 1938. Oh, wow. So very soon and after this like right at the same time like they're like oh hey there's a feature length film here it just made Disney millions mm -hmm. of dollars he was able to build his whole studio on the profits you know we should unionize and so Fleischer Studios unionized first mm -hmm. Disney held out mm -hmm. until like 1941 wow. and lost a lot of animators. Um, he he responded very badly in true capitalist fashion, you know, to workers who just, like you said, they want to clock out. Yeah. They want to go, okay, I'm done. I go home. And, you know, wanted a fair pay structure. Yeah. There's a lot of very good reasons to want unions and a lot of reasons really why capitalists uh, don't, don't want to give them to their unions. But so here are these artists, uh, many of them female, desperately wanting a union, mm -hmm. they were paid $5 a gag wow. for every joke that they thought of 
And back then, that would have been like 50 bucks Mm -hmm. for every joke that they thought of to add to the movie. So they are coming up with all these, you know, these jokes. Yeah. About that really kind of support workers' rights and everything else. And, you know, those poor those poor dwarves are working so hard, they clearly don't have time to clean their house. Right. So <laughs> they need they needed that time off. So um, I just, I love, I love the dwarves' outfits. Uh, the shoes are very medieval, mm-hmm. but they do have like belts and buckles. Yeah. Which, you know, you don't get those kinds of metal buckles by being poor. So I guess they right. traded in some of those gems for buckles. Right, you got to trade some but, of them, right. <laughs> That's right. But I just, I love that Phrygian cap and, yeah. and everything that it that it represents. Yeah, and that's really fascinating. So I wanted to say a little bit about architecture as well. The, the castle very much makes me think of something like the city walls of Carcassonne, where we have in the 19th century this major restoration, which was subsequently criticized as making them look like what they thought something medieval should look like. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is Violet the Duke. God, that's, that's you know, his, his thing, sort of. And so it's what he thinks it should look like, as opposed to necessarily what it actually does look like, right? I mean, obviously, the loss of the spire of Notre Dame was a tragedy, but it also, I always kind of mark, you know, it's, it's a spire that was kind of added by this guy because he thought in the 19th century, because he thought a medieval cathedral should have a spire like this. And uh, so the, the castle very much has that sort of vibe to me architecturally, that it's a, a kind of imaginary of the medieval that's very much in kind of 19th century medievalism, as opposed to precisely what uh, real medieval castles nexus necessarily look like. I kind of saw them as really being more like 17th or 16th century Mm -hmm. castles. But you are absolutely right. There is nothing definitively medieval about that castle. It did, however, I I feel like this movie really informed the aesthetics of Disneyland Mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah. And like the Disney logo as well. Mm -hmm. It's very much this sort of castle. Absolutely. And it is certainly what I grew up thinking of as a real castle. Yeah, sure. Uh, The cottage, I think, is fascinating because the cottage, first of all, it is gorgeous. It is very nice Mm -hmm. for a cottage in the woods uh, that is inhabited by a group of like working class manual laborers. In the middle of the woods like that, I mean you would expect it to be a little more cleared out. Mm-hmm. I think they'd been living there for a while. I right. don't know if there'd be qu- quite so many trees quite so close to the house. Uh, but that's, you know, an issue for the planning commission, not right. for them. Um, yeah. <laughs> really, um. really cool thing about the cottages is that it prompted a whole new style of architecture in Los mm-hmm. Angeles called storybook style. And Disney built seven cottages huh seven dwarves cottages in los angeles they still stand today oh, and wow. if you're lucky you can rent one and live in one. Oh wow that would be uh, i'm sure out of my budget to actually uh to actually <laughs> probably rent one but i'd love to go visit <laughs> i don't think we can do that i think i think you can only see them if you live inside Too them bad. but they are still there which is pretty wow. darned amazing yeah. but some of the animators lived in those cottages huh. Wow. Like it is, a, and the aesthetic of the cottage is really interesting. It does have a sort of kind of vaguely 15th century vibe. It actually reminds me a lot mm-hmm. of some like 15th century urban merchants' homes. 
but mm-hmm. there's actually some in uh, in France that are still standing, and it has some a lot of similarities mm-hmm. to that. And uh, yeah, the the cottage is very nice. I like the cottage. There's some fun little kind of I guess we'd call them. I don't know if Easter eggs is the right word, details. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the theme of the cottage is owls. You see owls everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that implies a certain amount of wisdom. Yeah. And then the scene where Dopey is looking, you know, he's heard the scary noise. He's gone up the stairs Mm -hmm. to see what kind of monster is up there. And he pokes his head through the door. But the carving just to his right on the floor is of a bunny rabbit, Mm. like a scared rabbit. And so everywhere mm-hmm. in the cottage are owls, except that mm-hmm. one little spot That's where so he looks scared. And then the organ. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing authentic about the musical oh, no. instruments. We'll just, no, not <laughs> we'll at just all. say that right there. But, you know, as an architecture historian, I really can't find much fault mm-hmm. with that little cottage, even, yeah. even though they're working class. Yeah. No, I, I think the cottage is really fantastic. The Queen's potion setup, I will note, is, uh, oh, is somewhat, it's, it's fantastic, but that very much looks like, I could see actually that working as a kind of 17th century alchemical setup. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite look medieval, but uh, it is, uh, so that, that looks a little bit later, but. I Yeah, I don't know, I'm not so good about when glass blowing got to that level of skill, where you know, you can have uh, lambics and things like that. But it's also just kind of your generic dungeon. Right. Yeah. You know, in that sense. But she does have uh, books on the shelves, which I loved. You know, one book for alchemy, one for witchcraft, mm-hmm. one for... It's like, wow, if only my library was quite that succinct. Right. But I certainly wanted that when mm-hmm. I was a little girl. Yeah. And I went home and would play alchemy mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. The one other thing that I will note as uh, a kind of slightly discordant note, you mentioned the animals in the cottage. There are, of course, our assorted woodland creatures. And I will note that a couple of them uh, would not be in... Uh, are are not native to Europe that they are uh, New World animals. So uh, raccoons and oh, chipmunks are the uh, the two that jumped out to me that we definitely saw at some point that you would not have found in the 15th century Europe. Good catch. Yeah. <laughs> so if we kind of take the overall vibe as maybe suggesting in 15th ish century setting. I find it really interesting that we have among the dwarves really just one grumpy who is deeply concerned about witchcraft since the 15th century mm-hmm. is this moment where we're really first seeing anxiety about witchcraft beginning to arise, right? That it's often incorrectly mm-hmm. displaced onto the earlier Middle Ages, but really it's not a major concern at that point. It's something that we really start seeing in the 15th century. This is, of course, when the Malleus Maleficarum is published in 1486. And uh, we do, I will note in that work, have a little bit of this concern about the wiles of women as being linked to witchcraft. But that in the Malleus Maleficarum, it actually does pretty overtly state that it's specifically magical. It's not just that you can, you know, by being very beautiful, tempt men to do various things, right? Like that's not witchcraft. That is a different problem. And in fact, it explicitly says basically that beauty is irrelevant, that through witchcraft and through things like, oh, well, this woman is actually secretly forcing men to, you know, 
eat her dung or something like, or, you know, you know, eat her poop or something along those lines, uh, that she is managing to bewitch them in various ways. And so even if she is unappealing or less appealing than his other romantic partner, that she is able to bewitch him in this particular way. And also, of course, the Malleus Maleficarum is also one of my favorites in that it's a text that goes into great detail about how witches can create illusions that convince men that their penises have disappeared. <laughs> and that they have to, like, get the witch to, you know, forgive them for whatever they've done, back. right, essentially, to uh, to bring it back, right? That it's That they take pains to note they can't make your penis actually go away, but they can cast such yeah. a convincing illusion that both in terms of your physical experience of it and visually, it seems to not be there. You have to assume that by that they mean, you know, they couldn't get it up, you know. (laughs) But it is this interesting, like, metaphorical representation of that because, I mean, you do sometimes see that in the literal sense, right? You see literal claims that, you know, she is, that witches cause impotence. But there Mm -hmm. are also these claims that, like, Physically, it looks like I do not have a penis. As in the shrinkage problem, as documented by Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. So she gave him a cold bath and it disappeared and he couldn't see it over his belly. Oh my God, it's gone. Is that is that what we're talking about? I mean, maybe, right? Um, but yeah, and then there's also these like weird, there are these, you know, images that have like cats stealing penises for witches. Mm. So there's, yeah, there's this, like, great, this, like, great engraving, which is, like, this, like, cat who's kind of, like, running off with, like, a penis in its mouth. Oh, with it in his mouth, in its yeah. mouth, but, yeah. And there's also yeah. this woman who's trying to, like, tempt the cat into trading it for a, for a fish, and the cat's having none of it. None of it. Nope, I got what I want, lady. You can keep your fish. And isn't, you know, isn't that a loaded, whole bunch of loaded symbolism there? Oh, yes. The anxiety, the anxiousness, Mm -hmm. the male anxiousness about being unable to perform sexually, obviously, is what fuels all of this. Right. And, you know, you can just, basically, it doesn't take too much imagination to, you know, picture some erstwhile lover, you know, with his beautiful wife or mistress or whatever in bed, and maybe he's getting a little older, and he can't you know, quite perform the way he used to. And so it's so much less embarrassing to say, oh, a witch took my penis. Than to admit that, you know, you can't get enough. Just not as virile. Just not as virile as he used to be. There's also, I think, some really interesting things happening with uh, religion. So, actually, do you Mm. want to go ahead and uh, talk about some of the kind of Freya, uh, kind of goddess element? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. So, you know, fans of uh, Nordic mythology are going to know all about Freya. And Freya is amazing. One of my favorite goddesses in, you know, a whole worldwide pantheon of goddesses that I adore. She was in a chariot that was driven by gray cats. She was the goddess of love, sex, warfare, and intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of unlike Aphrodite, who you know, makes questionable choices of lovers, Mm -hmm. as we all do sometimes. Freya had boundaries, you know. (laughs) Freya had standards. At one point, she wanted a magical necklace, and the dwarves of Brisingamen, who were originally elves Mm. and Mm. were not considered to be short in stature at all or live in the ground or Mm -hmm. anything like that. These were just magical beings that worked with metals. 
And she went to the dwarves and she said, look, I really, really want this magical necklace. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know, what's it worth it to you? You know, are you willing to have sex with each of us Mm -hmm. for one night? And she said, sure. (laughs) Got to get the necklace. Sure. It's magic. She wanted the necklace. And, you know, I think that this... You know, when you look at this from an allegorical point Mm -hmm. of view and that it's the four dwarves Mm -hmm. and that they represented each of the elements, fire, air, earth, water. Mm -hmm. And so she had to complete what was essentially a magic rite with each one in order for this magical work to be created. So, you know, to our ears, it sounds very questionable, Mm -hmm. but it actually kind of has a lot of beautiful symbolism to it it has to do with love magic and sex magic and Mm -hmm. everything else she was the goddess of sex yeah and so if she's going to co-create with these uh, allegories of the elements it makes sense that there would be some sex magic Mm -hmm. involved and so that got brought forward over time and you know the idea of this woman having to leave her home and go to some place where there's these magical beings that protect her and help her grow up in some fashion. It just, it comes right down to us through, you know, this Disney movie. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I find so beautiful about it, is that if you dig enough layers underneath, then you find Freya and... uh, you know, she didn't take any shit from anybody. She she certainly was not cleaning their house, I can promise right. you Right. And I feel like she would have been smart enough to not eat the poisoned apple. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. She And not only would she not have eaten the poisoned apple, but she would have been the one to make it. Yeah. Because she was the goddess of magic as well. Right. And, you know, when you look at Snow White and the Queen and the Crone, it's all the same character. It's maiden, mother, and crone, white, red, and black, all of those tropes. And, you know, the the sort of splitting of that archetype happens way before Disney, you know, happens by ancient Greece, if not sooner, when they get split into Persephone and Hecate and Demeter. And... We don't even have to go into the apple because we know what that's all oh, about. Yes. So, but I think you know, seeing these threads come through is really is really beautiful. And then, kind of on that note, there is a town called Lore in Germany mm-hmm. where there was a, according to legend, a young woman who tried to get away from her stepmother and ended up hiding by going into a local mine. Mm-hmm. which was supposed to have such low ceilings that only people of small stature hmm. could go in there. And so according to the history, it was people with dwarfism or children who worked hmm. that mine. Is that right. real? We don't know. There's so many towns that claim they're right. Snow White's yeah. you know, hometown. But I thought that was pretty cool. And listeners might want to look that up. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's really interesting because, of course, there's, you know, these various resonances from uh, local folklore and uh, from Norse mythology, but it also has some really interesting connections with Christian, actually really very much medieval Catholic ideas about sanctity. So first I wanted to remark on the 
the heart box that uh, her yeah, stepmother. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that she has like a special box that she designates that, you know, she wants Snow White's heart and she's going to put it in the box. And the box even has a picture of a heart on it. And of course, this would have been something that, you know, if you if you still go to various medieval churches or museums for that matter mm-hmm. today, you will find that uh, relics were kept and that the actual physical body parts of saints were considered to have a kind of sacred power. Churches, actually, I believe Catholic churches still are required to have at least a relic in order to be considered a kind of valid church in order to be consecrated as a church. And uh, that you have them often in these very beautifully designed objects, which not always, but sometimes have on them some kind of mark that highlights what is meant to be inside. So for example, you know, you have a reliquary that is shaped like an arm that has uh, an arm bone in it. And it's one that, you know, it might not have the arm bone of the apostle it's supposed to have, but, uh, you know, they've x-rayed it and it certainly has somebody's arm. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we go, you can go various places and see that uh, reliquaries often are kind of set up either so that there is a kind of glass that's making visible even the uh, body part that is inside, or that if not, there is perhaps something kind of on the reliquary to represent uh, either the particular saint it's associated with or the particular body part that it contains. That's, that's a really cool observation and really you know, brings in the whole Gothic Catholicism Mm -hmm. idea that this is kind of old and and vaguely evil and kind of adds a whole thing like, what was she going to do with that heart? Right, right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Was it it part of further further wicked magics that she was planning? You know, we don't know. Which which is a spell that requires the, you know, the human, the human heart and... If so, good thing she mm-hmm. noticed she found out first that it was a pig heart before uh, going forward with it. <laughs> well, maybe that's how she figured it out. I don't know. <laughs> I also found the uh, birds and wildlife really interesting. And this is something that definitely does have other mythological connections. But one of the things that really jumped out at me is its similarity to some of the narratives about St. Francis. And so in the uh, the Vita by Thomas of Celano, mm-hmm. it talks about the fact that Francis is uh, kind of has this special relationship with birds in particular, so that it emphasizes that animals kind of stop and they don't fly away when he's when he's there. They in fact seem to be listening to him preaching, and that he then responds by speaking to them directly. And uh, so that this is, there is this kind of connection of certain kinds of sanctity that also involve this uh, kind of particular special relationship with animals. He's also described as you know having this kind of particular sensitivity that. That if you catch fish, he'll throw them back in the water and, uh, you know, say, like, be careful, don't get caught again. So it's really very charming. And it is interesting because St. Francis is very much one of these saints who, I actually don't know exactly when this happens, but who kind of gets adopted in the United States in particular for this kind of friendly association with animals, right? That you can go to churches and have, like, and, you know, have, like, all of your pets blessed in honor of St. Francis. And he seems to be one of these saints who kind of gets... Even at peer, even in moments where there are potentially some kind of negative attitudes toward Catholicism, St. Francis kind of gets tamed in some ways and uh, is considered to be compelling. Yeah, he gets a pass. Right. <laughs> I also will note the kind of implicit uh, virginity discourse often linked with sanctity of the fact that very specifically, it actually says it is the first kiss of true love. If this is your 
spouse or longtime lover and you have true love, but you've already kissed. It's too late, I guess. And there's no cure. You're a goner. Right. You're a goner. And thank goodness he didn't try to steal a kiss at the well because otherwise game over. Right. Well, because she kind of ran off. Right. And so she has thank this kind goodness. of original modesty mm-hmm. that she doesn't even get a kiss. And so that's yeah the only thing that saves her life. So I found that fascinating. And then finally, the sleeping death has uh, some interesting connection with the uh, ideas of incorruptible holy corpses. This is something that's very common in medieval discourses about sanctity, that you dig up a corpse and it's miraculously preserved. It sometimes is uh, noticeably sweet smelling and does not smell of decay. And you can even go and see some of these incorruptible corpses in various places that there are saints that, you know, they and obviously in practice there was some kind of embalming done but saints whose you know entire bodies are on view behind glass and so there is this kind of interesting connection here of these uh, with these kind of saintly bodies which of course are are not going to be woken by a kiss but which do are but which are seen to have in some ways some kind of life after death and that the reason these bodies are preserved and visible is because they are seen to have a kind of power that's really interesting. I, it's kind of like, you know, this myth just sort of caught everything. Yeah. You know, and it caught little parts of every culture it went through, which, of course, is what you would expect. Yeah. But, you know, then to see it all kind of brought forward into the 20th century. Mm-hmm these things just last forever, like as long as an incorruptible corpse. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I remember actually being very sad on my, uh, my last European trip pre COVID. I was in Italy and uh, 13th century St. Angela of of Foligno, who I'm very fond of. I just find her and her visions very entertaining. And she is one of the ones uh, who you can go and see her incorruptible corpse. But unfortunately on the day that we were in Foligno, the, um, the kind of church shrine was closed sadly so oh, no, no, no corpse for me I'll have to hopefully go oh, back one bummer. of these days to see the corpse well properly. it's just a reason to go back yes yeah. <laughs> so at this point we can move into the Historia at Veritas where we talk about a real historical event person or phenomenon and I thought it would be interesting to talk about stepmothers since, of mm. course, we have the choice uh, that, uh, interestingly, you know, her her real presumably dead mother, who does show up in some of these Snow White written versions of the fairy tales in various ways, mm-hmm. is completely invisible here. Her father is also completely irrelevant. I mean, dead, presumably, but, you know, also mm-hmm. not not even talked about. Not important to the plot. Right. And the focus is really exclusively on this wicked stepmother figure. Mm-hmm. And I think the history of why it is that stepmothers are so common in fairy tales, because this is obviously far from the only example of that, of that trope, is really interesting given the fact that step parentage is an extremely common part of life in medieval and early modern Europe. For Christians, divorce would at the time, if we're talking about in in a medieval context or an early modern Catholic context, uh, you're not getting divorced. But of course, people are getting widowed. Obviously, illness happens, women die in childbirth, women also are often, say, marrying men who are perhaps significantly older than them. So if they don't die in childbirth, they have a pretty good chance to outlive them. And there really isn't a lot of stigma in practice against uh, remarriage. 
that it's quite common and it would be often very much expected that you would get married again after your spouse has died. For men, this is often because, well, in some cases, it's because you might want another, an, an heir or an, or an extra heir. But it's also because uh, uh, there would be an expectation that, well, I need somebody to uh, keep track of the house. And which, you know, happens on all sorts of levels, right? It's, uh, you know, literally the kind of cleaning and cooking in lower strata of society. But even in very wealthy households, the expectation is that it is the woman who manages that, right? The men is not the man is not the one overseeing your servants in the cooks. That that's something that the woman of the house would be expected to do. And so you you want a wife to take care of your house and uh, to take care of your children if you have them already. Somebody's got to make that pie. Somebody's got to make that pie or make sure that you've got the cooks and they're in the kitchen and they that know that somebody you else pie makes that the night. pie. Right. Yeah, that's right. If it's the birds, it's fine. But somebody's got to tell the birds to make the pie. Right. So, some, right. And somebody's got to hire the birds and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. And then women also, of course, are remarrying. And, and often mm-hmm. this is because uh, they are seeking financial support that mm-hmm. uh, unless you are very, very lucky and have a very, very large dowry, and also are sort of up for doing a lot of kind of money management or other work that you haven't necessarily done before to fully support yourself, especially given that if we're talking about, again, the lower strata of society, women's work is often low paid and low status. There are very good reasons financially that women would want to remarry. And of course that, you know, you're in a context where there certainly are people, not everybody, but some people who would be genuinely concerned about the state of their souls if they engaged in extramarital sex. So lots of people are getting remarried, and that means that there are lots and lots of step-parents. And of course, it's not entirely surprising that regardless of who's either the biological parent or the step-parent, it's pretty much always the woman who gets villainized. Yep. Women who remarried are inspiring this anxiety about the fate of their children in a way that men that remarried don't, or that at least if they do, they don't get blamed for it. So if a woman remarries, that then it's like, oh, what are you doing? You're, say, taking your dowry from the household, and so there's kind of overall less wealth based in the household to support the children. It's also quite common that widowed mothers would get named as the legal guardians for their minor children. But legally, they are supposed to be stripped of that guardianship in the event that they remarry. Mm. So this doesn't necessarily mean that they're losing custody because the two things are an equivalent. Guardianship is really about is really financial. It's about managing your children's wealth. But still, interestingly, there are a lot of contexts in which women and widowed mothers are seen as the ones who are going to do the best job of that because they are the ones who care most about their children and their children's futures. And that then if they abandon their children and leave them to some other relative because they're going off and getting remarried. And of course, the presumption is also like, well, your husband is going to be managing your stuff now and he's not going to care about your children. (laughs) So that this is looked on negatively in some contexts. But of course, it's always the widowed remarrying mother, not the stepfather who's getting blamed for, uh, for what's happening here. And similarly, though, when fathers get remarried, they don't get blamed in the when fathers get remarried, they don't get blamed in the same way for uh, the ways in which this might affect their children. The guardianship issue is obviously uh, not one that would matter because fathers are always presumed to be the legal guardians of their children and don't need documentation for it the way mothers do. But uh, (laughs) 
but that there is this concern that, you know, you are kind of bringing in this stepmother and that there are potentially real financial in particular consequences to this. So that even if you don't necessarily have a stepmother who is, you know, very obviously abusive and cruel in the way that we see in fairy tales, there is certainly an assumption that she's not going to prioritize her stepchildren in the way that she would prioritize her own children. So that the stepmother would potentially come in, they would, she would be kind of dividing up the estate, especially if she has children of her own. There are cases in which actually a woman, uh, women are kind of named step women are actually named the guardians of minor children, which include both uh, biological children and stepchildren. And there is anxiety expressed about whether she's actually going to treat the stepchildren fairly. So as I said there, that, you know, even when we're not necessarily talking about these extreme cases, there is this concern that and kind of villainization in some ways of stepmothers as not being kind of there in the best to look out for the best interests of their stepchildren, that the assumption is, you know, not that you would love and care for them like a parent. Yeah. And, you know, this whole idea that you live through your children. Mm hmm. That yeah. you live through your biological children and that your biological children are going to be the one to make sure that prayers are said mm -hmm. for you, that hymns are sung for you. And, you know, you're going to invest all your energy and time into the people you think most likely to do that. Mm -hmm. If you already have stepchildren and they're already obligated to pay for their own mother's hymns and prayers. Right. You know, why would you put everything into them? They've, you know, in a sense, their mother is never really gone. Mm -hmm. And their obligations to that parent are never really gone. I think it's also true that a lot of the time, especially when, you know, when a man took a, another wife, she was often younger mm -hmm. than the previous wife and may even have been much closer in age to his children. Yeah, that upset certainly wouldn't have been uncommon than to him. So that definitely complicates mm -hmm. things. And we know that step parenting is difficult in the best of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like just to look at, and this, you know, moves forward in time a little bit, but with King Henry VIII, all of a sudden Mary got pushed aside. Mm -hmm. Then Elizabeth was made the heir, and then Elizabeth got pushed aside, and then Edward was made the heir. So with each new stepmother, you know, there was a new heir to the throne, mm -hmm. and it's easy to see how, even though, like, 99.999% of the people had no kingdom right. <laughs> to worry about, you know, we're still kind of um, trying to emulate that kind of behavior. Right, and you're certainly seeing it, you know, because obviously inheritance matters in, you know, non-kingdom mm -hmm. contexts too, and that is something that you see, you know, in terms of, say, like, the kind of mercantile classes, that mm -hmm. you think you've kind of got things settled, you have a sense of approximately what kind of inheritance you might be expecting, and then that gets upended by the changing family dynamics that there's a new wife, yes. there might be step, there might be minor stepchildren. It might actually be in a position where then the late wife is the one who's going to be managing the estate on behalf of the minor stepchild of the minor step siblings. So it does very much kind of create this, uh, it kind of shakes up family dynamics in these yeah. kind of very particular, often financial ways. And uh, that uh, does very much kind of lead to anxieties, which do make sense. But it is, I think, fascinating uh, and important to keep in mind that they tend to disproportionately lay the blame on 
women and uh, just as a kind of quick book recommendation. Yes. Note, uh, yeah, this is something that uh, Christiane Klapisch-Zuber and her Women, Family, and Ritual in Renaissance Italy talks a little bit about these dynamics and about the, and uh, links them to the fact that women in this 15th, 16th century Italian context are often not seen as being really part of the family and part of the lineage and mm. part of the household in the same way as uh, men. And so, of course, it makes sense that if you have to lay blame somewhere, that's where it gets laid. As usual. Yeah. <laughs> Still true. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, so for the, the next segment, the Fabula Nostra, is where we talk about uh, a film or show or other piece of media we might want to create inspired by this one. And I'm actually going to go first, just uh, because it is linked to what we were talking about, that I think it would be really interesting to have a Snow White-inspired story, which attempts to kind of tell both sides and potentially think about this uh, kind of stepchild, stepparent relationship in a way that notes that both parties are looking out for their own interests, but that that doesn't actually make either party evil per se, but that there are just these conflicts that happen over inherited wealth that make a lot of sense in some ways. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, thinking about that, and uh, my ideal casting for that is that I was thinking of uh, Alison Brie as our Snow White and Lena Headey as our stepmother. And I am actually deliberately choosing this casting in part because it is a case in which there is not a big age difference, uh, that they are, I believe, nine years apart. So I think then this will also, you know, highlight, as we were talking about before, the fact that there is this kind of additional, particularly awkward dynamic created by the fact that it's this woman being brought into the household who is probably closer to your age than she is to your father's. And I think it would be interesting also potentially to do something with the fact that in terms of actually what we know about some people with dwarfism in the uh, late medieval, early modern world, mm-hmm. a lot of what we know is this kind of really messed up uh, dynamic that these are people who are mm-hmm. basically kind of pressed into basically being like professional entertainers at court in ways that are obviously ableist and disturbing. And so it would be, I think it would be interesting to kind of think about that history and to kind of maybe kind of include that in terms of thinking of the character. If we wanted to say make this like a historical story that didn't have as many fantastical elements, uh, that kind of thinking about uh, the seven dwarfs in that way. I would watch the heck out of that movie. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Do you, do you have an idea as well? I do. I actually, I wrote a story some years ago where, you know how in a lot of the old myths, like the the women are interpreted as evil now that Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been evil at the time. And so I wanted to see a story where the queen and Snow White are part of a, you know, a castle of a town Mm -hmm. and it's invaded and they kill all the men in the castle. And so all that's left of the original royal family are the queen who is Snow White's aunt mm-hmm. and Snow White. And so the queen, the usurper king, you know, has designs on Snow White. And so the queen becomes the queen, you know, mm-hmm. decides to marry him. She has, like, uh, magical powers and so, you know, makes him fall in love with her mm-hmm. as a way to protect Snow White. And her true lover, the huntsman, mm-hmm. takes Snow White out into the woods where, you know, she hangs out with the with the elves and the mm. magical creatures and then comes back and avenges her family. <laughs> yeah, I would love to watch that. 
Of course, you know, Snow White is obviously one of these areas where there's a million adaptations. So many, so many. And, you know, you can see why. It's just so rich. It's so incredibly rich. I think I do want to just kind of mention that there are so many terrible racial and ableist stereotypes in the dwarves that I I hope would not be repeated today. Right. (laughs) You know, and I think that your comment about them being forced to be entertainers is really spot on. Like there's sort of seven different kinds of fools Mm -hmm. in this movie and take that role very heavily. And they're also truth tellers. Yeah. And they take that part of it as well. And it's interesting because while I think they they do ultimately end up uh, in some ways being kind of more well-rounded and interesting characters than, mm-hmm. say, Snow White, certainly yes. than the prince who's really a kind of non-entity. He's a cipher. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that it is this kind of, yeah, kind of weird setup in that they each have their own quality that they are supposed to embody in a very specific way. And that that is seen as kind of defining their personality. And they had like 30 names to start with. Hmm. And then finally picked those seven. So there's a really wonderful documentary called The Making of Snow White. And you can watch it on YouTube. I think it's just like 39 minutes. Cool. Really fun to see. Cool. So I recommend that, and I recommend the movie She. Yeah, and I will I will do one other recommendation, uh, something that could end up being covered at some point on this podcast, but that one Snow White adaptation, which is uh, Gregory Maguire, so he's the uh, the author of Wicked, also wrote a novel, mm-hmm. Mirror, Mirror, which does not totally challenge the idea of a kind of wicked stepmother, but does make the interesting move of making the wicked stepmother Lucretia Borgia. Which uh, oh. is which is sort of fun. So I uh, I don't agree with all of the historical choices made in it, but it's a fun book. Understood. He's a wonderful writer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so this way we can move into our estimatio or rating section, where we rate the film on a scale from one to five based on whatever fully subjective criteria we want. <laughs> so Rachel, would you like to go first? Sure. I mean, this is this is a solid five Mm -hmm. for me. I just love it visually. And it influenced me so heavily as an artist, Mm -hmm. just in ways that I'm not even like, I think, fully cognizant of. But I do, you know, a lot of set painting and a lot of set design. And when I moved into a house with a basement, I... (laughs) I painted it to look like the dwarf's cottage. Oh, in wow. White. Like I've got, you know, kind of big round sort of Disney stones and the timbers and everything. I didn't get around to painting the carving in the timbers, but, you know, maybe I should put some owls in those now. Yeah. But I, I just, I just love it. I mean, you know, you obviously have to watch it with your critical thinking lenses on, mm-hmm. but Goodness knows that's true of every piece of media that we consume. So oh, yes. I'm going to be a bit harsher, I'm afraid. <laughs> Which is largely just because I, uh, I I really struggle with this movie uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about certainly in terms of the kind of ableism and racial stereotypes, the dwarves, but also really in terms of the misogyny. It's not like Disney in general has a amazing track record on a lot of that. And there's 
obviously a lot that many people have said about the Disney princess and about the kind of problematic aspects of uh, how women are portrayed by Disney and the kinds of models that it sets up for what women should be like. But this is... This is an example that I find in some ways uh, kind of one of the almost most egregious in terms of really Snow White. Her main personality trait is that she likes cleaning. (laughs) Well, that's not necessarily a terrible thing. But I hear you. I totally hear you. And she's very passive. That's a totally fair criticism. I would not want to be Snow White. I would not want my daughter to be Snow White. I wouldn't recommend that anybody be Snow White. And I feel like it is so obviously a fantasy and over the top at this point. You know, as compared to, say, like a a live action movie Mm -hmm. or something or, or even something a little hipper where there is sort of a little more kind of gratuitous feminism mm-hmm. thrown in, right. you know, but, um, but I totally hear you. And I, I certainly wouldn't argue with you at all on that point, for sure. I think that's totally fair criticism. Yeah, and I'm, I will actually, and I, uh, this is actually, I'm going to probably up the reading slightly from what I might give it based on my kind of difficulties with Snow White as a heroine, because I do actually think, as we talked about, the kind of medievalism aspects of this film Mm -hmm. are really interesting, including the visuals, which are so excellent. And I'm often a very harsh critic, so I'm going to be giving it a 2.5. Wow. (laughs) So I, I, if if it makes me feel better, I don't like anything. (laughs) That's good, good, good. No, and I I don't feel bad at all. Not, Not even remotely. These things are so personal. Yeah. And... When you see something as a kid and fall in love with it, you're not supposed to be looking at it with a critical eye. Right. That's supposed to come later when when we're adults. Yeah, don't be like Snow White. Right. And that is a, and that's in some ways one of my challenges uh kind of with this film, right? Is that uh so yes. I am not I am not a parent, but I feel like it would be really challenging for me to think about, you know, whether and you know what Disney I would encourage my children to watch if I had children and what I wouldn't. It's all so bad. It's yeah. all so terrible. And I actually, you know, there were a lot of Disney films that I did not show my kids mm-hmm. um, when they were younger. My daughter was addicted to Pocahontas, which is, you know, problematic on right. a whole Ooh, other yes. level. But you know what? Like, she grew up and became a, a passionate defender of indigenous rights Mm -hmm. and i think that we can we can transcend yeah this programming yeah but you are absolutely right it it just taken on face value as a piece of media and as a uh, looking at it as are there feminist icons here only if you're the witch, really. right? Right. Yeah, she's she's. I think yeah, the uh, the real role model here. I think so here. I I agree. Yeah, I wish that she wanted power. I feel like I would be happier with this movie if the uh, if the villain was actually at least if she was a woman who was doing this because she wanted Snow White out of the way so she could rule the kingdom. I feel like I would actually mm. find I would actually like that better than this kind of vanity motive, which is very much like oh, this is what women care about. Women care about their looks. And it's nonsensical mm-hmm. because she's already gorgeous, objectively, by any standards, beautiful and really more beautiful than Snow White. Yeah. You know, Snow White is young. She's got that going for her. 
she's got those cute little chipmunk cheeks, but we don't know. You know, right? It's like wait ten years and you'll be back. On yeah, top. wait ten years. <laughs> wait twenty years. You know, the queen is is clearly in her late thirties or forties. Mm-hmm. You know, stunning. she looks fantastic. Yeah, still stunning. And then you know the the hag that she turns into. I love her. You yeah. know, I love that grandma. Like, that's what I'm turning into. <laughs> <laughs> Good goals, honey. If I bring a magic apple to your house, then it really is going to make your dreams come true. I'm not going to waste my time having you fall on the floor and then have to deal with a body. <laughs> I mean, it just all sounds very poorly planned is right. what I'm saying. The old woman with like less sinister chuckling. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, perfectly, mm-hmm. perfectly good role model. But I would say, you know, as an artist, it gets it gets full marks yeah. from me. And my love and respect for the film really has everything to do with my love and respect for those artists. Yes. You know, uh, hundreds of them that, you know, worked around the clock, didn't go home, you know, just painting and painting and painting and drawing and drawing to make the most beautiful thing that they could possibly make and oh my gosh they they did an amazing job so if you don't want to be polluted by you know by the story and the messages you know turn on Pink Floyd and uh, (laughs) turn off the sound and, and watch it that way yeah, and especially also, you know, as as adults, we certainly, you know, are all very capable of watching things, you know, with our with our critical eye. And uh, exactly, I often say that there are, there are often things that I'll, you know, give a low rating to, but that that doesn't mean that I'm saying don't watch it. Got this it. Is certainly, Got it. <laughs> uh, visually, I think this is a classic that holds up. Plot wise, I'm not a hundred percent sure it holds up, but aesthetically, absolutely. Sounds good. So are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Well, you know, I tend to be a behind the scenes kind of person, but I I do have a couple podcasts. Uh, One of them is through my Shakespeare company, Rose City Shakespeare Company. I have a Twelfth Night podcast. I did an audio recording of Twelfth Night, and it's got sound effects and everything else. I'm currently working on some commentary that I recorded with some other directors, and I'm deep into the sound editing process now, which is probably going to take me a little while. But we really, we get into every scene and uncover all the dick jokes, because (laughs) there are so, so many dick jokes. Oh, it's the best. And (laughs) then there's uh, my first podcast I did, which is currently on hiatus, is called Actually Autistic. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I started when I discovered at 57, much to my surprise, that Mm -hmm. I'm autistic, and discovered my community. And I got to interview a whole bunch of really interesting people who are also actually autistic Mm -hmm. to talk about specifically what happens when you realize as an adult uh-huh. that you're not weird, that you're not broken, that you're just a different neurotype and there's lots of us out there. So that's actually autistic. You can find that anywhere. And Rose City Shakespeare Company 12th Night Podcast. I think if you enter all of those words into your search bar, you will find them. And, oh, I just started one more podcast. I'm on a podcast called Shattered Worlds RPG. Mm-hmm. I just started a brand new character there. And cool. it's uh, super fun. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review us. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaablePod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifjecker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you, Rachel, again for joining me. This was a lot of fun talking about this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I had so much fun. Thank you. Good. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Just whistle while you work. And cheerfully together we can hide a look.